Welcome to episode number 52 of Off the Shelf. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. My name is Rod Bergen, and I want to welcome you to Off the Shelf. Our goal is to help you to know what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. Our podcast is primarily directed to followers and former followers like ourselves of William Branham. Message ministers often tell followers of the message that when they run into a passage in the Bible where William Branham's views appear to differ from the clear meaning of Scripture, they should simply put the biblical passage on the shelf and wait for God to reveal it to them. The purpose of this podcast is to take those passages off the shelf and to look at them without message glasses. We have now reached 139 countries with our podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a comment on our website. Before we continue with our interview with James Manuel, I want to share with you a significant change in our podcast, which will come into effect immediately. The Off the Shelf podcast is something that I do in my spare time, primarily on weekends. It was born out of a love for those who are still in the message and for those who have left the message, but still have a lot of questions. But many of our listeners aren't aware that most of my time is spent with Power to Change, a ministry that is the Canadian affiliate of Campus Crusade for Christ International, or CRU, in the U.S. The mission of Power to Change is to help people know Jesus and experience His power to change the world. We have 11 ministries, which include our student ministry, athletes in action, family life, leader impact, our humanitarian arm, the Global Aid Network, or GAIN, Christian Embassy, Connecting Streams, DRIME, the Women's Heart Engaging Network, or WEN, our women's ministry, the Life Project, and the Jesus Film Church Planning Strategy. I think you can imagine that this takes virtually all of my time. In fact, I recorded this announcement on February the 3rd and am traveling to Texas, Europe, the country of Benin, in Africa, and then on to New Zealand. I'll be out of the country for almost a month. Needless to say, this makes putting the podcast together a significant challenge. Effective immediately, the Off the Shelf podcast will be going from a once a week format to once a month. I would love to continue this on a weekly basis, but I simply do not have the time. I really appreciate all of the emails that have come in and all of the comments that have appeared on the website. I will put a link on the Off the Shelf website to Power to Change so you can take a look at what I do with the bulk of my time. Please pray that God would continue to help us reach those in the message as well as non-Christians around the world with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Now, back to our interview with James Manuel. But we continued, you know, and, and everything that happened in the message rod was always the pastors or the people and things. I couldn't see anything that William Branham did wrong. To me, he was the prophet. He was the absolute. Everything that I did... Um, 
evolved and revolved around William Brennan. Um, I remember one day um, we, we met with another brother who claimed to be a prophet. His name was Cliffy Peterson. And he came up to us and told us these pastors are all vipers and we should leave them and join his church. And that is how we started wandering, writing the message. And we all went with Cliffy Peterson. And it was a couple of months later that we realized that Cliffy Peterson was one of the biggest crooks that you could find because he, um, he robbed me, he robbed my father-in-law, he robbed everybody blind. Wow. None of us knew. None of us knew about it. Um, but these are little things that sort of, you know, if, if there's a whole lot of little things happening at the same time, that eventually amounts to a big thing. Yeah. Then another brother came along and he believed that he was Elijah. And he had a, a brother that we all knew. This man was Moses. And then they started with this <laughs> thing, Moses and Elijah's on the scene. And they got my father-in-law to um, go and knock on each pastor's door and tell them that they must get ready. The rapture is about to take place because Moses and Elijah is on the scene. My goodness. And My goodness. these men, same as, as William Branham, they drove all the way to Ladysmith, uh, 400 kilometers from where we live, because apparently there was a mountain peak with their faces um, in Ladysmith. So they went there to go and have a look at themselves, um, grafted in stone. Um, but then one day, you know, with, with this, this brother, I mean, and, and they were very, very, the people were very, very sincere. One day, this prophet Elijah, he um, stood and he told us that the Lord has shown him that the rapture is taking place and that we'll get together on a Wednesday night. And while he's busy preaching, the lights will go out and in that darkness, the rapture will take place. Well, you know, that was, and, and you hear people confessing, you know, Lord, make me ready. Lord, I don't want to miss it. And people were really worried. And you will not believe me, Rod. One Wednesday evening, we got together and the lights went out. It was chaos. People were crying. People were screaming. My sister-in-law was sitting immediately behind me, and I heard her saying, Lord, I know I'm not right, and I can't stay behind. Please, Jesus, save my soul. Wow. Lord, I don't want to stay behind. And my wife, uh, Crystal, she was pregnant with our first child, and she was praying earnestly, Lord, I would love to see my baby. What's going to happen to my baby if the rapture takes place now? And in this confusion, the lights went on again. And this prophet Elijah got up and he scolded us for the rest of the evening because it was our disbelief that stopped the rapture. That's why the rapture <laughs> didn't take place that night. I'll never forget it. Um, we, we were really taken for a joyride. You know, there was this new thing that came out about the third pool. And I, I 
remember from the early days when, I mean, it's not a new thing. It was, yeah, in the early 70s, people were talking about the third pool. And there was this one brother that got up one Sunday evening uh, to testify. And he says that the Lord inspired him so when he read about this third pool. He says he went to the bathroom to, um, this is disgusting stuff, to, to, to make a number two. And while he was sitting on the toilet, the spirit of the Lord spoke to him and said to him, ask what you will. And he says, and, and, and he says, then the Lord showed him that the third pool is creating things, speaking things into existence. And he looked over and he saw the toilet roll. And he decided that he's going to speak to this toilet roll, come to him. And now he sits there and he tells the toilet roll, toilet roll, unroll yourself and come to me. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Toilet roll, unroll yourself and come to me. And he sat there and eventually nothing happened. And I, he testifies and he says, um, but it's a start. It's a start, you know. Um, eventually the toilet roll will come to me. And everybody is up and praising the Lord. and Everybody is rejoicing and happy, you know, that this third pool is going to happen. I remember another brother, he landed himself a nice job at Caltex Refinery. It's about maybe about. 20 kilometers from where we all stayed. Um, and he got a call out one Saturday morning. And his car, you know, we all battled in those days. His car was just about an empty. And he decided that because he had to go in, he laid hands on the car and he did a prayer. And he says, Lord, your prophet said that we will speak things into existence. So I speak petrol into this tank now. He got into his car, turned the ignition, um, turned his key, and the car started, and he, and he went to work. And he was so excited because now he realized the third pool is in operation. You know, you speak the word and it will happen. So Brother Donald Baikis um, does the same thing when he comes back. He lays hands on the car, does a prayer, and he drives. And so he got home. So in his excitement, he decides on a Saturday afternoon, all the brothers used to get together and we used to fellowship around the message. He decides that he's going to come in there and tell us that brothers wake up, the third pool is here. And then he explains what happened to him and he says, brothers, come, let me show you. Let me show you. Um, and we get into this car, all of us, a small car, about six, seven of us all got into this car, all crammed up. And... He drives, starts the car, and he drives. We maybe drove for um, maybe a half mile, you know, half, half a mile when the car cut out. And then he swung the thing, and that went chicka, 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 and the car wouldn't start. Eventually, you know, he sat and he looked at us. He says, brothers, the Lord has just spoken to me and said to me, this third pool is not a public show. And he confessed there that I tried to show off, but the Lord doesn't want this. And you know what, Rod? We ended up pushing the car back home. Um, we took up an offering, and then we went to get some petrol, put it in, and then the car started. And, you know, so, so this third pool thing was, was nothing new. Um, yeah, that's completely bizarre. Honestly, we didn't. 
I didn't see, I didn't experience that kind of weirdness because I would have just told them, look, you're weird. I mean, there certainly was some weirdness around, but we tended to, to ignore it. Now, James, you were a minister in the message. Were you a pastor or did you just help with the ministry in the churches you attended? When I, when I started in the message, um, they realized that I could play guitar. So I, I started off as a musician, and after a few weeks, I became the, the, the chorus leader of, of the message church that I was in. Um, and then a bit later on, I started preaching um, and, and went up the ranks you know, of trustee, treasurer, deacon. Um, and then there was a period where we just stayed home. We, we had enough of this craziness in the message that we saw at the time. So we just stayed home. We didn't go to Harold Beckett's church or to any other church. We just stayed at home. And one Saturday evening, we had a family function. And we were sitting there and we were surprised. My brother-in-law was there. My wife's cousin was there. Um, some other family members. And none of us went went to church and all of us were in the message and we decided that Saturday night that why don't we have our own service and so the Sunday morning the following Sunday morning we started our own church um, started off initially with about 10 people but that church actually grew to about 50 people and I, be, I became the pastor of that church um, and I, I remained pastor uh, for about five years in, in that church, and we grew. We did a lot of a lot of work. One of the things that I didn't do as a message pastor was I did not promote William Branham. I did things completely different. I went to the Baptist church, and then they have like a circuit, you know, a whole area, you know, like 50 Baptist church churches in, in, in a circuit, and they would allow me to go and preach to all those uh, people in those churches. And then we went to the Docks Mission and some other churches. And I was really preaching the message without using the name William Branham. But everything I preached was the message. Um, and, you know, we, and then we, we went uh, into rural areas in the country. Uh, we, you know, once a month, we would take two, two or three carloads of, of brothers and we would just go into the rural areas and and minister the message. Um, we established a few tape libraries in these uh, rural areas. And there was one area in particular, DR, where um, we concentrated. We built up the church. The, the pastor at the time was um, having problems. So we concentrated on helping him building up his church and and getting his church on its feet and strong again. But then I also had my own business at the time. And so, so after five years, one of, one of the things that sparked um, me leaving the ministry at that time was um, my business was growing and the church was growing at the same time. And we had all this money accumulating, you know, like uh, I didn't, I didn't take, um, unlike, what we hear today, I didn't take a cent of, of any of the money. Uh, what, whatever expenses there were, 
I would cover those expenses and I would pay for the trips out of my pocket. And so the money just accumulated. It just became, you know, 10,000, became 50,000, became 100,000. And we didn't know what to do with this money. One of the, one of the uh, brothers suggested we, we hand this money over to Voice of God recordings. At the time, I wasn't convinced that they were doing enough for the people because I'm, I'm really just all about people. And that, that is my passion. Um, and I, I decided, no, we're not going to do that. So the money just accumulated. And then after five years, um, I had to make a decision. There was this one Baptist church, this, um, one, of, one of the leaders, Stanley Felix, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, he built up this church. They, were, they had about 500 members. And at the time, I was preaching every Wednesday night in that church, giving them teaching message teaching, which they enjoyed very much. Um, and then he said to me, he's getting old now. And the Lord has shown him that he must hand over the work to me. And he wanted to send me to a Bible college and, you know, to, um, to get some theological background mm -hmm. and then take over the church from him. Uh, and that was really the, the uh, you know, I was in that valley of decision and I had to, I had to decide what to do. One of the things that I said to myself is I cannot sell my birthright. I cannot take over a denomination, a church in a denomination. Um, that would be selling my birthright. And I would, I would be blaspheming the Holy Ghost if I do a thing like that. So I decided that I wouldn't take that. But I also then decided that I'm going to step down as pastor of, of our church. I called the people together. There was no one else that could take leadership. And we decided that each family will decide where, where they would go and fellowship. And my family, um, they were acquainted with some, some people in Hebron Tabernacle, the church of, of Stephen Dilo. And so my family decided that's where they, they uh, wanted to go. I first went, to, went on holiday to America. And so when we came back, they were already at the church, and, and so we just, we just followed. And then one wonders what happened to the money. Um, I then called the brothers in, and I said to them, look, this money doesn't belong to anybody. It doesn't belong to the, it doesn't belong to the laity. It belongs to the Lord. And one of the suggestions were to, to uh, divide the money and let each family take their portion to their church, their pastor. And to which I replied, no, um, you know, those pastors get enough money and stuff like that. Eventually, one of the pastors um, died. Um, and he was, he was a well-known guy. I, I, I really admired this, this pastor. And when he died, his wife was just left destitute. And we decided then that we would hand all this money over to this pastor's wife. And so my wife and myself went there and just took this big bag full of money and just delivered it to this pastor's wife and said, God bless you, and we left. Um, that's, that was the end of it. Wow. And, and then, you know, I started at Hebron Tabernacle. Within a few months, they made me a deacon. And again, there, Stephen Dilo and myself, was we were very close. 
2004, the two of us traveled to the New York um, Seventh Under Convention in, in Pennsylvania. And we spent some time with um, Joseph Coleman at, at his home with his family and uh, Junior Rebredo, his son-in-law. Um, and yeah, we, we just uh, sort of became very, very familiar. And that is where I ended up, you know, in a, in a Seven Thunder camp um, in the message. Yeah, and I have been largely unfamiliar. We hear things, but I never really was in in the Seven Thunders or knew much of what they taught. And for those of our listeners who might be unfamiliar, it is one of the subsects or subcult within the message of William Branham and started, I guess, and founded by Joseph Coleman, who was kind of the leader and the guy who, who started it off. So if I ask the question of you, James, you were in the message for 40 years, give or take, but did you actually believe it? Rod, um, to be very honest with you, I believed the message with all my heart. Yeah. Everything that I've been taught, I believe that it is not true when people say that you've left the message because you couldn't live it. It is not true when people say that um, you left the message because you are backslidden. It is not true when people say that you uh, couldn't live up to the standard of the message. That's why you left. In fact, I heard some people say that um, you, you, um, you were excommunicated because you couldn't live out the message. All those things doesn't, um, it's not true. It's yeah. just not true. Um, talking about the seven thunders and, and um, Joseph Coleman being the leader, in 2007, um, I was also on holiday in, in Connecticut, and I visited a church, um, uh, Grace Covenant Church, I believe it is, and they are followers of Robert Lambert. I don't know if you know the name Robert Lambert. I've heard it. Yeah, it's just another one of those kind of offshoots in the message that I don't pay much attention to. Right. Today, the, 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 the man that's really in control of that um, subsect of the message is a guy called um, Dalton Bruce yeah. of uh, Trinidad. Is he the guy that was murdered? Yes. Lambert was um, apparently, Lambert was very close to William Branham, and he claimed that he had the original revelation of the Seven Thunders, and Joseph Coleman actually stole it from him. So you know, it's, it's, uh, Coleman was preaching stolen thunders. Robert <laughs> Lambert um, was murdered in, in uh, Connecticut in 1973. Um, I met his wife. In fact, I, I know his wife well. I met his, well, his wife's new husband, Dale, who's actually very, very close friends of ours when we, when we visited uh, Connecticut. I actually uh, had dinner at Robert Lambert's daughter's home one evening. Um, and I spent a lot of time with, with, with that group of people because at one stage, one of the elders came over to me and said to me that um, if I wanted to stay in America, they could fix up my paperwork um, because, uh, uh, you know, uh, they just had this... Um, 
this leading of the Holy Spirit that I'm their man for Africa. And, you know, I should, I should go and spread this truth in Africa. Um, what, I, what I liked about that group was that they were very conservative. In fact, ultra-conservative. But they were also, um, they didn't compromise in any way. The thing that I didn't like was the spirit that they, um, uh, you know, that they had a very, very ugly spirit. There's, there's, I mean, if, if, you, if it's a woman that approached them, they would call the woman a war without, you know, say, you're, a, you're a harlot, you know, um, why do you come and speak to us? Just keep quiet, you know, uh, that sort of thing I didn't like. And I assume they also thought that other people in the message, people who were following William Branham but didn't believe in the seven thunders doctrine, the way they taught it, uh, really were foolish virgins as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so, so, yeah, the one virgins were telling the other set that they were foolish. Um, there was one funny incident where these elders uh, took us for, for lunch one day, Rod. And so we were sitting at a, at a restaurant in, in uh, I think it was in West Haven, uh, Connecticut. And my wife was sitting opposite, Crystal was sitting opposite the eldest wife. And, you know, and I noticed this eldest wife's eye was like focused you know, close to Crystal's breast. And she was just staring at this. She had a little embroidery on a, on a top that she had on. Um, um, my mother-in-law bought this top for her. And so she didn't look at it. She just put it on, you know, and, and, and liked it. And it felt good and things. But um, as soon as we got home, I said to Crystal, let me have a look what is the sister, you know, what, what she was looking at. Because, you know, you could see on her face something wasn't quite right. And right here was embroidered, very small, just, just close to a breast, sweet bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it was, and we just, you know, it was so, so funny. And you hadn't um, noticed it before. No, we haven't noticed it before. So um, with, with this uh, Seven Thunder thing, you know, um, it is really the one thing that um, I thought was, was going to get us in the rapture. I remember um, the very first time I went to uh, a convention in Pennsylvania. I walked in there. And the soft music was playing, and it was so holy. And, you know, it felt like you had goosebumps on your arms, and, you know, it was like really, really holy. And I thought, wow, where am I now? Um, and, you know, when I got to Stephen Delos Church, I felt that same, the same music was playing and I felt that same goosebumps and I thought, wow, this is good music. I found out afterwards it was Benny Hinn music, you know. <laughs> so, so nothing, nothing original about it. It was just, everything was just a put on. Um, the message, yeah, you know, um, did I really believe it? Yes, I did. As did I. Yeah, I, I really thought this was going to be my last stop. I thought, you know, I'm going to go in the rapture uh, through this message. Um, I had no idea that I was ever going to turn my back on the message. 
that was never part of my plan. That was never, um, you know, my children were raised in the message. I mean, from, from, from our first child, um, I used to be one of those strict dads. We had three girls first and then the two boys. And those girls weren't allowed, even when they were babies, to wear um, uh, uh, slacks or wear those, you know, those baby clothing. Um, they were girls and we bought dresses for them or we got my mother-in-law to make dresses for them. Yeah. And when they grew up, I would, I would stand at the door and watch them, you know, and, and I would say to them, let me inspect you. Let me rather disgrace you at home than allow a deacon to disgrace you at church. And I would look at them and send them back several times until I'm happy. I would not allow them to cut their hair. Um, I would not allow them to uh, participate in any sport. You know, the message was our life. Yeah, you believed it wholeheartedly. Yeah, I believed it wholeheartedly, without, without a doubt. Okay, James, I'm going to bring our time here to a close. Obviously, we have not even got into the whole conversation of what started your journey out of the message, and we will get into that at our next time. Yes, yep, it was nice uh, chatting with you, and it was, it's really a privilege. I want to add one thing to James' comments on the third pull. It is interesting to compare what William Branham said about the third pull with the temptation of Jesus by the devil. Matthew 4.3 says that when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. William Branham stated that he spoke squirrels into existence at the command of a voice that spoke to him. In referring to the voice he heard, he described it as something said. Was this God speaking to him, an angel or something else? When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan asked him to turn stones into bread. Jesus was hungry and was tempted to do what Satan asked him to. In the case of William Branham, he was hunting for squirrels. So why was this different from Jesus' first temptation? One common interpretation among message believers is that the third pull will manifest among believers as the ability to speak things into existence. This interpretation is primarily based on William Branham's testimony that he created squirrels into existence by his own spoken word through the instruction of a voice he heard. The danger with this expectation is that it forgets Jesus' first temptation in the wilderness. When the devil tempted Jesus to use his supernatural powers to create bread from stones in order to satisfy his own hunger. Sadly, this temptation is exactly what message speakers are expecting to yield to in the future. If the tempter came to a message believer with instruction to create bread from stones or speak squirrels into existence, they would likely give in to the devil instantly because they would follow William Branham's example and not the example left to them by Jesus Christ, who alone had dominion over the devil's temptations. In our view, William Branham simply yielded to the temptation. This is the end of the first portion of our interview with James Manuel. I will be completing our interview with James when I'm back in Canada. The best way to keep up to date with the Off the Shelf podcast is to subscribe either on iTunes, Android, or Google. 
Just click on the appropriate button or link on our website at offtheshelf.life. We will be back in a month, and I hope you will be back then to hear our next podcast. May God richly bless you, and thanks for listening.